brothers and sisters, it's been a blessing to go on this tour de force of the four Gospels over these last four weeks. This series, of course, is not intended to give you an in-depth, verse-by-verse exposition of the books of the Bible, but we are giving you the big idea of each book of the Bible. And these four weeks, we have seen this gospel diamond. Remember, we use this illustration of the gospel as a diamond, and we are, we are turning the diamond as we go through each gospel to see the multifaceted glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Remember in Matthew, we saw how Matthew emphasizes Jesus as heaven's king, the Messiah, and the bringer of the kingdom of heaven. Remember in Mark, we saw how Mark emphasizes Jesus as the son of God. Last week, we saw in Luke and Acts, as the two volumes of Luke's work that he wrote to his patron Theophilus, that Luke emphasizes Christ's global kingdom mission, that this is a mission that's going to the ends of the earth, and he wrote to give us certainty of that truth. Well, now we come to the final gospel, John's gospel, and in John we see that he emphasizes the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ. And now after this sermon, I want to encourage you as you go back in your own devotions and you read the Gospels, look for these emphases as you study the Gospels themselves. So as we study John this morning, this big idea of the glory of Christ, we're going to see three ways that John emphasizes Jesus' glory in the gospel. And then we're going to look at two ways that John calls us to apply that knowledge as we behold his glory. What then does that mean for us? So we're going to see three ways that John emphasizes Jesus' glory, and then we will see how he teaches us to apply it in two ways to our lives. So let's begin with the first way that he shows us Christ's glory, and that is in the prologue. If you take a a quick look with me at your worship folder where I've included an outline of John, John is typically understood as being divided into two halves that also include a prologue and an epilogue. So you have a a prologue in chapter 1 from verse 1 to verse 18, and then a book that a lot of commentators will call things like the book of signs. Here I have it listed as the signs of glory, and I'll show you why in a little bit. The second big part of the book, then, the second half, is what is called the hour of glory. It's Jesus' hour that he keeps pointing to this hour that is going to come about. And in that section, we're going to see how the theme of glory is expounded there. And then finally, in the epilogue, we also see a way that glory is expounded there. We'll get that to that with the final application uh, later in the sermon. So that just gives you a big idea. You can basically think of John as two halves that has like an introduction and a conclusion in it. Okay, so an easy way. We have the signs of glory and the hour of glory. As the, as the big thing, the big way the whole structure is divided. Well, let's dive in then. So number one, how, do we, how does John show us the glory of Christ? First, let's behold Christ's glory in the prologue. Number one, we see Jesus' glory in the prologue. John speaks of Jesus' glory in several ways here. But in the opening verses of the gospel, we see Jesus' glory because Jesus is God. I had Gideon read from Genesis 1 because it hearkens us back to the beginning. In many ways, John could be the first gospel in the order because John begins with the beginning, the very beginning of all things, of time itself and creation. And he says that this word, this logos, 
This word was in the beginning. Not only that, this word was with God. But not only that, this word was God. If there's been any doubt about who Jesus is, John seeks to dispel it at this point. You've read Matthew's gospel. You've read Mark's gospel. You've read Luke's gospel. If there's any remaining doubt about who Jesus is, John gives it to us in these opening verses. He is the creator God of the universe. He was in the beginning. He was with God. Indeed, he was God. Verse 3, John says that all things were made through him. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That means things visible and things invisible were made through Christ. And that makes me think of what the writer of Hebrews says when it is Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That Jesus' power literally holds our DNA together and our molecules. It holds gravity together. It allows the planets to orbit around the sun and the moon to orbit around the earth. That power that holds a universe that defies comprehension. That we could not even travel to in a billion light years. It's made through Christ. That is his glory. That is his glory. But not only that, we also see a glory in verse 5. That the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a light that cannot be overcome by darkness. That's who Jesus is. More than that, Christ's glory was manifest in the flesh. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about this for a moment. Where did the Old Testament, or sorry, where did the Holy Spirit dwell in the Old Testament? Where did it, where did it dwell? God dwelt in the temple. His Shekinah glory was in the Holy of Holies. And this is a glory that we read about in Ezekiel when we studied that book, where the glory leaves the temple and travels over the Mount of Olives to the east and is gone. But now John says that glory is now tabernacling among us in Jesus. This word dwelt among us is the word tabernacle. The Shekinah glory of God has now come in a person and has been made manifest to eyewitnesses like John and the early Christians. We have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's one last way, then, that we see his glory. As John points out in this prologue, because Jesus is the one who makes known the glory of the Father. We read in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God. No one has ever seen God, and then he says, the only God 
who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The final revelation about who the Father is, is revealed to us in Christ. So we've seen here in the prologue, Christ's glory in that he is God. We've seen his glory in that the darkness cannot overtake him. It did not overtake him. That will be a theme throughout this gospel. The darkness and the light. We have seen Jesus' glory in that he tabernacled among us. He took on flesh. That would be a great sermon series on the hypostatic union, how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. We'll save that for another day. And we have seen Jesus' glory here in that he's the one who reveals the glory of the Father to us, who makes the Father known to us. What a great way to start a gospel on the glory of Christ. So number two then, let's look at how John shows us Christ's signs of glory then in the first half of the book from chapter 119 to, to the end of chapter 12. Christ's signs of glory. First of all, we are told by John what these signs are for. Remember in John 2, we have the famous wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine and and they're stupefied because the master saved the best wine for last. Normally, you give the good wine first before people get drunk. And then you give the cheap wine later when they don't even know what's going on or what they're tasting. Now, I'm not contoning drunkenness. That's just the point. They were stupefied because why would you save the good wine to last? And if you want to know more about the function of this sign and we can you can go back to our sermon series we already did a sermon series on the book of john but what we see here is that after jesus turned the water into wine john makes this gives this narratival insertion here in verse 11 where he says this the first of his signs jesus did at cana in galilee and manifested his glory. This first of his signs was the first of his manifestations of glory. John is showing us here that Jesus came to heal and to preach and to cast out demons and even indeed to raise the dead to reveal his glory. These are signs of his glory. And that's why many commentators have called this opening section the book of signs. There are many I am statements like I am the good shepherd. I am the door. But one of the most profound I am statements comes to us in John 8. And John 8 shows us, and this is a debate among scholars, did Jesus know that he was God? Did Jesus know that he was God? Or did the early church just deify him? Just Was Jesus just a, a regular bloke who was a good teacher, who maybe thought he was the Messiah, but did Jesus think of himself as God? You know, I'm sure that that's what's being taught, perhaps, at the local seminary here in town. Because that's what most liberal teachers and seminaries will say today. Well, Jesus didn't actually think of himself as God. That's just something that the pious early Christians attributed to him. But it's a lie. It's another way for man to sophisticatedly get out of having to bow the knee to Christ as king. We'll just treat Jesus as an interesting historical figure that had a pious following. But John is showing us, uh-uh, he is God. But not only 
Do I think he is God as is an apostle? But Jesus knew it too. And one of the most clear places we see this is in John 8. Remember, the Pharisees are claiming that Jesus has a demon. Right? He's blaspheming. And John 8, 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Here's the great throwdown of the Pharisees. Who do you think you are? Are you better than Abraham, our father? And the prophets, they all died. Who do you think you are? And Jesus answers in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, and here it is, Jesus' self-acknowledgement of who he is. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is unmistakably pointing to the very name of God, Yahweh. I am. The Jews so reverenced the name of God that they wouldn't even pronounce it. In fact, if you read in the Hebrew and you, and you see the name Yahweh, I am what I am, the name that the Jews would not pronounce, the personal name of God. With the vowel pointing, it would spell Adonai, Lord. And Jesus is unmistakably meeting the challenge of the Pharisees. You're not even 50 years old yet. How can you know Abraham Jesus says, before he was born, I am. There's not a clearer self-statement from Jesus of who he is than that. He is Yahweh. Because that was such a blasphemous statement to the Pharisees, we read in the next verse. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus has revealed his glory in this section through signs like turning the water into wine. Through an emphatic self-statement of who he is before Abraham was, I am. But one of the most well-known signs of Jesus' glory in this book of signs comes in John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Not only is Jesus a good teacher, but as God, he's the one who raises the dead. There's a lot of remarkable things about this story, and uh, we don't have time to spell them out today. But one of them, I, I just I can't pass it up, is the glory of Jesus' humanity. The glory of Jesus' humanity. Now think about this. When you think about... Uh, Someone that's uh, 
a great theologian or someone that's a, a, a really good student of theology, you usually think about kind of a sober, somber kind of Maybe a mind detached from the rest of life sometimes, right? <laughs> you think of a scholar, it's kind of like they just live in their brain and there's not a lot of heart or feeling there. And uh, that's, that's the reality of a lot of theological students and then God beats them up a lot and teaches them life. You know, that's kind of the way it goes. But think about this. Jesus, as God, knows everything. Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. One of the most, I think this is, this, you don't, we don't often pick up on this. One of the great signs of glory in John 11 is Jesus' humanity and the fact that he cried. Indeed, he wept at the news that Lazarus had died. Lazarus was probably one of these close friends of Jesus in Galilee and a close follower. And yet, knowing what he was about to do, Jesus still wept. The compassion and the humanity of Jesus is a glorious sign of his glory. <laughs> it's a window into who our God is, the heart of God. But in the midst of that, we see another sign of glory too in the, one of these other I am statements where we read in verse 24, Martha said to him, to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus goes on and raises Lazarus from the dead. So in this book of signs, Jesus or John has showed us Jesus' glory and the man who can turn water into wine and makes these amazing I am statements who can raise the dead. We get one last glimpse into the glory of Christ in this book of signs as well. In chapter 12, John more than maybe any of the other gospel writers emphasizes the hard-heartedness of the Jews. And the book of signs ends not with, okay, Jesus showed all these signs and now everyone believes in him. This should be encouraging for us planning a church together too. You know, we've, Jesus, I mean, if we had Jesus right here, Jesus says he's with us. Always. So Jesus is with us this morning as we're planning. He's with you as you bear witness to the gospel in your community. He's with us. But not even Jesus saved everyone. And John, through the first 12 chapters of his gospel, is showing these amazing signs of Jesus' glory. How does John end this opening section? with the unbelief of the people. In verse 37 of chapter 12, we read, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Sometimes we pray, we, it's like, Lord, couldn't this be the days of Acts when we could do signs and wonders and heal people? straighten people's legs. I'm poking at the false healings of Pentecostals. But um, well, couldn't we just do these amazing things? And then everyone would believe. If Jesus was here in the flesh and the Spirit's not working, 
it wouldn't make any difference. Think about that. It's like the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the rich man's in, in Hades, in hell. He's saying, go, go tell, go tell my, go send, go send Lazarus back and tell my brothers, my family members who, who he is, who you are, so that would, they would be saved. And John says to them, or geez, sorry, Jesus says to those opponents that even if someone were to raise from the dead, they will not believe. If they've not believed Moses and the prophets, they will not even believe if someone rises from the dead. But at any rate, back to the Gospel of John in chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Unbelief and hard-heartedness is not a sign that the gospel ministry is not at work. If it was, that means that Jesus failed too. But why then do people not believe? And why specifically in this case the Jews? And John goes on, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. And now here is the glory of Jesus. Verse 41, where John says, Isaiah said these things because they saw his glory and spoke of him. Elsewhere, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks, we learn, we learn that Jesus' glory is revealed in Isaiah 6, when the angels are bowing before, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And here we see John as well saying, whose glory? Whose glory did Isaiah see? Whose glory did the great prophet Isaiah speak about? It was Jesus. So then John closes the book of signs saying the entire Old Testament here, Isaiah is a sign of Christ's glory. It speaks of Christ's glory. It's pointing to Christ's glory. Isaiah beheld Jesus' pre-incarnate glory in that vision and spoke of Jesus, that suffering servant that he writes about. Yahweh, who would return to save Israel would be Jesus. The one who would bring the new heavens and the new earth as Isaiah concludes his prophecy will be Jesus. Isaiah said these things because they saw, he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. But despite the unbelief, we are then told in verse 43, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So John closes the first half of his book with this glory confrontation. He's been revealing the glory of Christ, and many refuse to come because they love the glory that comes from man. They love their own glory more than the glory of Jesus. So John leaves us at a bit of a standstill at this moment, and he's going to return to it at the end of the gospel. But for the moment, we now transition then to the third way that Jesus or that John shows Jesus' glory, and that is in Christ our 
of glory. Christ's hour of glory. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps speaking of this hour. My hour is not yet. My hour is not yet come. It is not yet my hour. But as the book of signs comes to a close in chapter 12, we see this hinge between chapter 12 and chapter 13. And in John 12, as this as we're coming to the bridge of this book, Jesus says in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then when we come to the opening verse of chapter 13, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So now in this hour of glory, the glory of Christ that we see is that Jesus loved his people to the end an end that would take him through the most excruciating and humiliating execution that the Roman Empire could devise. Jesus' glory is that he loved us. He loved his people to the end. And we see his glory in many ways, and you could study that in your own time, including how he washed his own disciples' feet. As the king of the universe, he took the form of a servant and washed the dirty feet of his own disciples. Unthinkable in the time. John shows us Jesus' glory as well as in chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. This third section is, is really divided between this this discourse, this farewell discourse, and then Jesus' high priestly prayer, and then the passion. With the passion is just the, the word for sufferings, is death and resurrection. But in this high priestly prayer, we have this beautiful, this beautiful prayer of the Lord that really reveals what he was all about and what he was doing. We see the theme of glory for him and for the church, several places in this prayer. First of all, in John 17, 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus knew what man's chief end was, doesn't he? This is one of the things that drew me to the Reformed and the Presbyterian expression of the Christian faith. Because it's the only, it's the only confession I ever discovered that begins with the main thing. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Jesus, as our representative, the reason he had to take on flesh to do what we failed to do, his opening prayer is, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' obedience is his glory and the glory that would reflect on his Father. In verse 5, likewise, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's another statement of Jesus' self-understanding of who he is. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Then Jesus goes on to talk about his glory in his disciples. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, 
and I am glorified in them. That also points us back to man's chief end, because Jesus is glorified in us. Jesus prays for us. He says, I do not ask, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Verse 20, more explicitly, he's praying for you guys sitting in the seats this morning and for me too. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then look at this, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Here's this theme of glory again. By our very union with Jesus, we are caught up, not in a way that blurs the distinction between God, between creator and creature. We don't become God. But in some marvelous and miraculous way, Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that way we may be one, so that the glory of the Father and of the Son is also shared to the redeemed creatures who Jesus saved, that we might bear witness to the truth. There's more I'd love to impact in John 17, but we have seen in this hour of glory how Jesus' humanity, his obedience to the end is his glory. We've seen his self-understanding that his whole mission and his redemption of people like you and me was to be glorified by the Father and to share that glory with you and me. One last way that we see Jesus' glory in this hour of glory is after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. He appears to the disciples in chapter 20. And you would think, you would think that after Jesus reveals himself to the people he was closest to, that they would get it. But what do we find? We find doubting Thomas. Thomas is having a hard time. We read in chapter 20, verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twins, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is like your classic skeptic who wants, always wants more evidence. Always wants more evidence. But praise the Lord that Jesus condescended to give him more evidence in this case. We read in verse 26, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, you know, come over here. This is, I'm reading between the lines. Thomas, come here. It'd be like me saying, Peter, come here. Come here. Jesus calls him over. In verse 27, he says to him, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And here we see Jesus' glory revealed once again. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord 
to my God. Thomas came to know me by the mercy of Jesus, revealing his glory, even the glory of the marks of his execution. And Thomas wept and said, my Lord, The reality is, is that not everyone, even then, is going to believe. And we're, we're in a pretty hard-hearted place, aren't we? There's a lot of hard-hearted places in the world. Not everyone's going to get it. But John concludes the gospel then by putting it to you as the reader. What do you make of these signs of glory? This wonderful purpose statement is revealed at the end of the hour of glory I have it marked in your worship folder, the purpose statement, John 20, 30 to 31. This is John as the evangelist preaching to you when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is the bar to life, eternal life? Is it knowing everything? Is it being a theological master? No. It's simple faith. If you believe, you have life. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you have life in his name. That's why John revealed to you Jesus' glory so that you would have life. That's the first application. I told you there'd be two applications that John gives. That now that you've seen and beheld the glory of Christ, that you would believe. And by believing, that you would have life in his name. I don't remember how many times I, I mentioned it in the study of John, but how many times the word believe is mentioned. It, John just dominates all the other Gospels. It's believe, 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 believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe the, the, the call to faith over and over again. The way to life is faith. In Jesus, and here John says, all that I've shown you is so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life in his name. The second application requires us to think a little bit more and that brings us finally then to the epilogue of the Gospel of John, John 21. And I just want to focus at one part of this, this epilogue in this final chapter and that's Jesus's interaction with Peter. Could you imagine the shame that Peter would have felt denying Jesus three times? I'm sure Peter felt like he was lost, like there was no saving grace left for him. You know, from time to time, I meet people who struggle with the faith and they did this thing or they did that thing or they struggle with this or they struggle with that affliction and they're like, I'm beyond redemption. But look at Peter who denied Jesus three times, who sat there, watched Jesus go before Pilate, who watched Jesus executed like a common criminal. He thought he was done for. And the devil will tempt each of you, if he hasn't many times before, that whatever you've done is one sin too many. You're just not quite, good. you're just a little too fallen to be saved. But let's take heart from Jesus' interaction with Peter. So in verse 15, we read, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? talking about the other disciples he said to him yes lord you know that i love you he said to him feed my lambs 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. John gives us in this conclusion to his gospel this illustration of what it means to love Jesus. You know, we talked this morning before the service began about a submissive love for Christ and a committed love for one another. That's our, our prayer for our church family as we grow and seek to plant this church. How will Peter glorify Jesus? Jesus has called Peter now to care for the sheep in his place. Peter will, he evokes this, this image when he writes in his first letter about being an, a shepherd of Christ's church. Being a shepherd under the great shepherd. But that route of laying his life down for sheep, of going through the persecutions and struggles and trials of being a minister of the gospel, an apostle, would ultimately lead to his own crucifixion at the hands of wicked men. He's saying, Peter, you know, when you're young, you got to choose what clothes you wore and you got to choose where you would go. But because you're going to feed my sheep, there's also going to come a time when other people are going to dress you the way they want to and they're going to take you somewhere you don't want to go. And John makes it clear that Jesus said this to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Uh, church uh, tradition tells us that not only was Peter crucified, but he was crucified upside down uh, because he did not consider himself worthy enough to be crucified as Jesus was. So the question then is, comes back to us. In this closing application, I believe John shows this to us, not merely to help us know more about Peter, but it's the question to you, as it was the question to the early church who could face crucifixion or execution or being fed to the lions or slaughtered by the gladiators in the arena. What do you make of this? You've beheld Jesus' glory. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to glorify him? And you, you, whether man, woman, or child, you need to decide, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And have you counted the cost of what it means to follow him? Not only does the gospel call us to believe, but then it also calls us to follow him and follow his path. So as God has graciously given us four Gospels, and as we've had the privilege to turn the diamond over these last four weeks to learn about Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus as global mission, we find ourselves in Stavanger, Norway this morning, a little over 2,000 years later. What do you make of it? Will you lay your life down and follow him and find the light of life? At the close of the signs of glory, Jesus tells the disciples, and warns them, and he warns us too. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You remember how John began the gospel after talking about Jesus being God? The darkness did not overtake him. We are in a dark city, friends, in a dark country, in a dark world that is still under the control of the enemy. But in following Jesus, even to the point of death, we have a guarantee that the darkness can't overtake us because it didn't overtake him. So brothers and sisters, believe, follow Jesus, and may we together in this city that the Lord has brought us to walk as children of the light. And may the Lord use our own witness to be the means of salvation of many in this city. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are about to sing, I now will give wholehearted thanks to the Lord. We're about to sing of your marvelous works to declare our delight in you, our love for you, even as Peter in a, in a, a humiliating circumstance of being confronted by Jesus you could do the same thing to us through many humiliations and say, do you love me? And if we say yes, may we give our lives to care for your flock and to follow you even when it means taking up our cross. Lord, I pray that you would bless your church here in Stavanger and that you would use each of us to bear witness to your glory that when people reject it, we would not be discouraged knowing that even if Jesus was right next to us in the flesh, people would still reject him. But I pray also that you would redeem many in this city. We can take none of the glory for that because we are helpless to save a single soul unless you choose to work. So, Lord, we pray that you would work in us and through us that more and more in this city would come to glorify you and enjoy your glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's sing of the Lord's glory and give thanks, singing Psalm 9a.